chapter number 26. Matthew chapter number 26. I want to share something with you that the Lord allowed me to share with a group of fellows at a prayer breakfast on a Saturday. And actually the Lord had started giving it to me um, last week uh, throughout this series of meetings or some things said. That's very often how it is with a preacher. You know, one spark begets the next spark. And uh, you'll be hearing something that somebody will say and God will just use it in your heart and in your mind. And uh, so I, I want us to take a look at Matthew chapter 26 this evening. We'll begin reading in verse number 36. We'll read down to verse 45. The Word of God says, Then cometh Jesus with them unto a place called Gethsemane, and saith unto the disciples, Sit ye here while I go and pray yonder. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be sorrowful, very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here, and watch with me. And he went a little further, fell on his face, and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. And he cometh unto the disciples, and findeth them asleep, and saith unto Peter, What, could ye not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, except I drink it, thy will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, and their eyes, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then cometh he to his disciples and saith unto them, Sleep on now. And take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let's pray together. Lord, we do love you and thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. Now bless the preaching of your word. Let it stir hearts, Lord. Let me be used for your glory tonight. May we see Christ and see the cross in this and see you and not see any of us. And Lord, may we through this be drawn closer unto thee. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You know, I've always been fascinated with the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there is much that we just simply do not have time to say tonight about it. But uh, the word Gethsemane means olive press. means a place of pressure, a place of pressing, a place, a place of extraction. And certainly when we look at the Lord's experience in the Garden of Gethsemane in praying concerning this cup, and we'll say a word about what that cup was and what it meant, before we're done this evening, but we certainly see him being pressed beyond even the limits of what the human body can uh, can contain and can experience. This evening was a night of prayer. It was a time dedicated, at least this portion of it, to prayer. It wasn't the first prayer he had prayed that evening, nor would it be the last prayer that he would pray uh, even on that on that very Jewish day. You have to remember, by the time they get to Gethsemane. The next day has began because in the Jewish calendar, the evening, the morning of the first uh, day. And so the evening comes for, uh, first in the way their calendar days are concerned. So even in this very moment at Gethsemane, before that day is out, if we could say it that way, it wouldn't be the last prayer that he would pray. But I think it bears special significance to us for a few reasons that I want us to notice this evening. Now let me just say this before we get into the message. Uh, the Lord Jesus' whole life was about prayer. He prayed all the time. He was in constant communication with His heavenly Father. 
And of course, there were times of public prayer, corporate prayer. There was times of dedicated prayer when he would go apart from the crowd and he would be by himself. He'd go into a desert place and pray. But the Lord Jesus was simply never out of communication with the Heavenly Father. That's how our prayer lives ought to be. We should have... I'm going to try that again. Amen. That's how our prayer lives ought to be. When we can't say our prayer life ought to be like Jesus' prayer life, something's wrong. Amen. But uh, that's how our prayer life ought to be. Uh, the Bible says we ought to pray always, pray without ceasing. And that doesn't mean we ought to never do anything in our life except uh, lay on our face alone in our bedroom before God. But it does mean that there ought to always be an open line of communication between us and the Father. And when we look at the prayer life of the Lord Jesus, there are a lot of outstanding prayers. seems sort of strange to call a prayer outstanding. But I mean, there are iconic moments in the life of our Lord and Savior uh, that centered around prayer. I think about the prayer that He prayed when He was outside of the tomb of Lazarus. Uh, He thanked His Father in heaven for hearing Him. And then He said in verse 42 of John 11, He said, I knew that Thou hearest Me always, but because the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that Thou hast sent Me. And then He he calls out Lazarus' name. He says, Lazarus, come forth. And then immediately they hear the stir inside of the tomb. And Lazarus comes walking forth in grave clothes. I'd say that was a pretty effective prayer, don't you? I'd say that was a powerful prayer, wouldn't you? He prays and immediately sees an answer to his prayer. I think about what we sometimes call the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever. Amen. I'd say that's a pretty good prayer, wouldn't you? It's a very model that teaches us what prayer should contain. I'd say if we were to go to John 17, we'd find one of the great prayers of the Bible when the Lord Jesus prayed for those that the Father had given unto Him. And He was including you and me in that too. He said, I don't just pray for these, but I pray for those that believe through their word, through their testimony. That was a prayer that reached down through dispensations and through ages to touch your life and mine. I would say there are a lot of astounding prayers that the Lord prayed. But I think of all the prayers that he prayed, the prayer that we read tonight is probably sometimes the, the least emphasized of all of our Lord's prayers. And can I tell you why I believe that is? I think there is a human tendency to believe that this prayer was not heard. I think there is a human tendency to believe that this prayer did not get answered. I believe there is a human tendency to say that this was an unsuccessful prayer. But can I remind you of what the Lord Himself said? We already read it in John eleven forty two. He said about the Father, I know that Thou always hearest me. I think if we look at this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know what I think we'll find? I think we'll find a successful prayer. I think maybe if we adjust our perspective on prayer to what it ought to be, I think we'll find that this prayer, uh, equal with, and can I say this, in some ways even surpassing every other prayer the Lord Jesus prayed, was a successful prayer. And if our prayers can be like His prayers here, I believe we'll find our prayer life to be a success. I want you to notice a few qualities, and we're just going to walk through these. I don't have subpoints. Of course, when you got 47 main points, you don't need subpoints. Somebody say amen there. I don't want to, I don't want to overload you, you know. But, uh, I got no subpoints. I just got a few things I want to say tonight, and then we'll go fellowship. Let me say number one. I think when we look at this prayer, One of the things that made it successful was it was specific. 
the Lord Jesus prayed for something specifically. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. Now somebody's going to say, well, preacher, what is that cup? Well, commentators are, are a bit skewed on their opinions about it. Some people believe that that cup is the cross itself. Some people believe that that cup is uh, Him being made sin for you and I. Him uh, becoming sin, being made our substitute uh, in His death. Some people believe that that cup uh, might have been uh, spiritual warfare that was transpiring at that very moment. You know, an angel had to be sent from heaven to strengthen him. Some people believe that cup was the attempt of Satan uh, to try to short-circuit the plan of God and to kill him before Calvary. If I'm being honest, let me say, I don't even know what that cup was. I have my opinion, just like you got your opinion. But if you're being honest with me, as honest as I'm being with you, you'd have to admit you don't know either. The fact is, we really do not know definitively what this cup was. But we do know this, that to the Lord Jesus, it was a specific cup. He was not praying in generalities. He was praying in specifics. You know that general prayers get general answers. And specific prayers get specific answers. I think we we short-circuit our own faith a great many times when we refuse to ask God for specific things. Go ahead and get specific with God. You'll be surprised how specific He'll get with you. Ask God for distinct things. Else how will you know it was the hand of God that delivered it to you? I was telling them the other day, and well, I'll say this here in just a moment, but let me say that our prayer life, we should not pray just for generic things. Now, let me say there are some things that may sound generic, but that we mean specifically. When I'm praying for God to watch over my kids, I don't know what the danger may be, but I'm praying very specifically for a distinct thing. I'm not criticizing some of the prayers that we pray that we may consider to be general, but I'm saying this, don't be afraid to ask God for specific things. Paul said in Philippians chapter number 4, verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. The peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Ask God for specific things. Hey, there's, there's a particular job you're praying about and you're asking for God's wisdom on? Ask God specifically about it. Hey, you got a health need? you got something you desire to transpire in your life? You've got something you want to see God do in somebody else's life? Ask God specifically for that thing. You know what you'll find? There are a great many times that God answers specifically to our heart's cry. But because it has not been our prayer, we often neglect to give God the praise and the glory that is due His name. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, there's times God gives me specifically what I need. I mean tailored to exactly what I need. But because I never asked God to meet that very need, I somehow pass over it and disregard it as God's providential hand. How many times do you hear even Christians say things like, well, it just works out. i got news for you. Don't nothing just work out. We've got a great God in glory that worketh all things according to His will. It didn't just happen, friend. It wasn't lucky. It wasn't fortunate. It was a glorious God that sits providential upon the circle of the earth. And I'm saying this, we need to pray specifically. And when we do, we'll begin to see God answering specifically. Not only was it specific, but let me say this, it was spectacular. Now, I don't mean to say that it was a fun request. But what I mean to say is that what the Lord Jesus asked was a large request. 
I told you a moment ago, we don't know what that cup is. And we can we can make guesses. We can even make scripturally educated guesses as to what that is. I know what the book of Revelation says about the cup and the wrath of God and everything else. But really, if we're being honest, it could have been any number of things he could have been asking about. But I will tell you this definitively, no question, absolute authority. I can tell you what that cup represented. To him, it represented the very depths of God's omnipotence. It, it, it represented the very highest, loftiest reach of God's glorious power. So how do you know that, preacher? Because what he asked for was not possible. Now stop and think about what I just said. What, I, what he prayed for, what he asked for, was not possible for an omnipotent God to perform. So how do you know it wasn't possible? Because he drank of that cup. So that tells me this. You know what he was asking for? He was asking for as big a thing as was imaginable. I was telling the fellas, this is what I started to tell you a moment ago, I was telling the fellas on Saturday, one of the things that annoys me is uh, you'll see these politicians get on TV. They'll be caught in some kind of scandal. Do you know politicians get in scandals sometimes? I had no idea. This thing just started a couple of years ago. I didn't know that. But they'll get caught in some kind of scandal and they'll get them on TV. And there'll be, there'll be a reporter and they'll ask him questions. Now here's this old boy and he's, I don't know, he's stepped out on his wife or, or he stole a bunch of money or who knows what, maybe he bought votes or whatever it might be. And they'll get him on there and they'll ask him about everything except what he's in trouble for. Everything except what he's in trouble for. The whole reason he's having an interview is because he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar, but they'll ask about everything except the cookies. They'll ask his favorite color, they'll ask uh, what his favorite album is. They'll ask what, you know, whether he likes green grapes or purple grapes or whatever it might be. And they'll ask, and you know what we say? We say they're giving him softball questions. In other words, they're giving him questions that are easy to answer. You know why? Because they're afraid of asking him the hard ones. Can I tell you something? We need to quit lobbing God's softball prayers. We need to quit lobbing God. Did you hear me tonight? We need to quit lobbing Him softball prayers. That we pray because we think it's easy for Him to answer. And instead, we need to start praying for big things from God. Say, preacher, what's going to happen if, if He don't answer that prayer the way I want? Well, that won't hurt you. That won't hurt you. If you don't pray for it, it ain't going to get answered the way you want. I, somebody asked me one time, well, one of the preachers did this past week. They saw our calendar hanging up over here. And one of the preachers asked me, he said, man, how do you do that? And I thought... I don't know. I, we type it up. We send it to a printer. He sends us a calendar back. He said, no, no. How do you plan your whole year out like that? He said, there's no way that I could plan our whole year out. And I told him, I said, you know, I used to feel that way. Uh, I, and somebody encouraged me, and I saw other churches do it. And I thought, and here was my line of reasoning. I thought, if we plan this calendar out, and let's say that 40% of it winds up going wrong. 40% of it winds up going wrong. That's 60% of it that we planned and we're ready for. And, and guess what that is? That's 60% more than I was doing last year in planning. Hey, it's a basic, it's a simple principle. But I'll tell you this. We say, well, I don't want to ask God for big things. What if He says no? Well, you sure enough ain't going to get it if you don't ask for it. We have not because we ask not. Go ahead and ask Him for big things. Worst thing He can do is in love say no. But oh my, what happens if He says yes? Imagine all the things God could be doing in our life if we just had the courage to ask Him for them, to pray for them, 
the psalmist said this, speaking in the personage of the Lord, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. God challenges His people to challenge Him, not in an irreverent way, not, not, in, a, in, not, not in a selfish way, but in a, in, in a believing way, in a, in a way filled with faith and confidence in Him and His power and His ability and His wisdom to challenge Him, to prove Him, to see if He'll open the windows of heaven, to ask Him to do big things. And I think the Lord Jesus' prayer was, was successful because it was spectacular. He was asking for the biggest thing that could ever be asked for. He said, if it be possible. Let me say number three, I believe it was successful because it was sincere. It was sincere. You know the number one thing that I get asked by new Christians all the time, or people that I'm witnessing to and sharing the gospel with, and it comes time I say, now you need to pray and ask the Lord to to save you in your own words. And and, and without questions, the thing they'll always say to me is, preacher, I don't know how to pray. What, what, What an indictment that is against our testimony, our I mean as Christians, our testimony of prayerlessness, that society doesn't even have the concept of what prayer is anymore because they're not interacting with, with Christians that pray. And I, young Christians will say the same thing to a preacher, I just don't know how to pray. And I will always answer the same way. I'll always say, you're talking to me, aren't you? And they'll look at you funny. Well, yeah, I'm talking to you. And I'll say, do that, but with God, not with me. Just talk to Him. Just talk to Him. Where along the line we thought that we have to have some grand eloquence to speak with God. I know He's God. I know He's thrice holy. But I also know that we're commanded to come boldly before the throne of grace. I know that by the blood of the Lord Jesus we have boldness and access uh, by grace and by faith in His blood. I know that, that He has gone to great lengths to afford us the relationship of a son and a father whereby we cry, Abba, unto Him. God is very interested in you being sincere with Him. So interested that you're indwelt by the Spirit of God that enables you to approach in a, in a reverential heart of tenderness and familial intimacy with Him. I'm saying this, the Lord Jesus, he, he, just, he just told God what He wanted. He just told Him what He wanted. I don't think He mince words, I, I think He just said it. You say, preacher, how do you, how do you know that? Well, listen to what the psalmist says in Psalms 142. Verse number 1 says, I cried unto the Lord with my voice. With my voice unto the Lord did I make supplication. I poured out my complaint before Him. I showed before Him my trouble. And you'll say, well, that's good that the psalmist did that. But now listen to what verse 4 of that chapter says. I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know me. Refuge failed me. No man cared for my soul. There are certain psalms that are what we call messianic psalms. Meaning they look beyond the scope of David's natural relationship with with people or beyond the scope of whoever that particular psalmist might be in that psalm looks beyond those immediate circumstances, looks beyond that immediate relationship and looks forward into the heart of the Son of God and speaks forth His very words insomuch that when He hung on the cross, one of the seven sayings that He said from the cross was a quote from Psalms 22, another messianic psalm, when He said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Lord Jesus, He looked on the right hand at, at, to see who would, who would help Him, who would care for Him. The, the way it's said in the psalm itself is He said, I, I, I beheld, I looked on my right hand and beheld, but there was no man that would know Me. He's talking about that one thief. 
He, he didn't say, I looked on the left hand because there was one that would know Him. <laughs> but He looked on that right hand and there was no one that would know Him. Refuge failed Him. God did not take Him off of that cross. God did not shield Him from the pain of that cross. And then He said this, and this is how I know it's the Lord Jesus, because He said, no man cared for my soul. Not one of us could ever say that. You know why? Because we've got Him that cares for our soul. But the Lord Jesus in that moment, forsaken even by the Heavenly Father, could say, no man cared for my soul. This was a messianic psalm, and it's that very psalm that says, I poured out my complaint before Him. You know what that means? I had a gripe fest with God. I just went ahead and told Him every grievance I had. I went ahead and told Him every heartache that I was feeling. I went and told Him uh, everything that I thought wasn't the way that it ought to be. Now, I understand and you understand the Lord Jesus. His will and His wisdom was always in concert with the Father. But I'm saying this. I believe the Lord Jesus was a million percent sincere. I don't believe He held anything back. I don't believe He wore any kind of mask. I believe He told the Father just exactly what He wanted. And until we get real with our prayer life, prayer is not going to get real to us. We've got to start being honest with God. You might as well be honest with Him. He knows you anyway. He knows everything you're thinking anyway. Go ahead and be honest. You'd be amazed. Some of y'all may not understand what I'm about to say. Some of y'all may not even like it. But you'd be amazed what it'd do for your prayer life if you just every now and then lose your temper with God. I'm going to say that again because I don't want you to think I said it by accident. You'd be amazed how it'd help your prayer life if every now and then you'd lose your temper with God in the prayer closet. And just go ahead and get real honest with Him. If there's something you're broken about, if there's something you're angry about, if there's something you don't understand, if there's something that you can't unriddle, instead of trying to wear a mask and pretend as though you're more okay with it than you are, go ahead and just be honest with God. It's okay to go up and say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't like this. And I don't know why it's like this. And, and, and Lord, I don't hate you, but I am frustrated at the circumstances. And Lord, I just want to see this change. You say, well, that change Him. No, but it'll do a lot to change you. It'll do a lot to change you. Some of us, when it comes to our prayer, law, uh, prayer life, we're emotionally backlogged. We've been playing games for so long that we've done forgot what prayer is about. Until we get real honest with God, that's the only thing that's going to clear that log jam. We're going to have to start getting honest with God. Just go ahead and tell Him what's on our hearts. Go ahead and be sincere. It was sincere. Let me say, not only was it sincere, but I noticed it was strenuous. It was strenuous. Luke tells us that he prayed until his, his sweat drops were as it were blood. I don't know if that means that he sweat literal drops of blood, or if it means that when he sweat, he sweat so much that it was like somebody had come along and opened a vein on him, and he just sweating so much that it was like blood dripping off. I don't know. But I do know this, that it was serious prayer. It wasn't casual. It wasn't passive. Listen, I think a lot of us would do well to trade some of that formality for fervency. We, we spend a lot of energy being formal with God. I think we'd do better to trade some of that formality for some fervency and instead be passionate in our prayer life. Quit being so proper and start being more passionate and just praying and begging God to change something and begging God to intervene and begging God to help us and begging God to change us and just getting real honest with God and asking Him to do for us what we can't do ourselves. James said it's the effectual... Fervent, fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. I got to thinking the other day, I know what the word effectual means and I know what the word fervent means. The word fervent means, means it, had, it carries the idea of friction, of heat, 
of activity, of energy, but has the idea of something that's passionate, something that's intense. And the word effectual means effective. If something is effectual, that means it works. It works. But you know, how are those two words connected? I thought to myself, I I want my prayer life to be both fervent and effectual. And I know how to make my prayer life fervent. I control that. But how do I make my prayer life effectual? Because if I could make my prayer life more effectual, you better believe I would. If I could make it work better, you better believe I would. And then the Lord prodded my heart about this and said, Son, one is dependent on the other. You want it to be effectual, make it fervent. And it'll be effectual. It'll be effectual. I believe it was strenuous prayer, and I believe that that is part of what made it successful. The Lord Jesus didn't hold nothing back. He just kept praying. And I noticed that it was steadfast. He goes back three times and prays over the same thing all three times. Now, I'll say a word about why he quit it three times, but can I just say it this way? He prayed until he got an answer. He prayed until he got an answer. The Lord Jesus Himself taught several parables about prayer that that illustrated this invaluable and irreplaceable component of effectual prayer. In Luke chapter 18, in fact, the Bible says He spake a parable unto them, unto this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. So the purpose of this prayer or this parable was to teach His disciples how that, that persistence in prayer is powerful. And the Lord said this, There was in a city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her. Lest by her continual coming she weary me. The Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. Shall not God avenge His own elect, which cry day and night unto Him, though He bear along with Him? In other words, He said, listen, if this little widow woman, who, who the judge had no fear of, who the judge had no sense of obligation or responsibility to, if He would avenge her simply because she wouldn't leave Him alone, she just kept going back, going back, going back, and going back, and don't you think God will answer when He sees our persistence? He told another parable of this in, in Luke chapter 11. He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend shall go unto him at midnight and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity. Now that's a Bible word for being a pest. Importunity. He will rise and give him as many as he needeth. And I say unto you, this is, he says, this is what I'm getting at. This is what I'm trying to get you to understand with that parable. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. You know something that's a common theme in both those parables? Is that God is a lot better to us than either of the men were in those parables to the people that were asking them to do something for them. In the first one, it's an unjust judge. Can I say we have a just judge? In the first one, he didn't fear God. In our life, he is God. In the first one, he didn't regard man. But our God, he regards man. 
He taketh thought of Him. He knoweth our frame that it is but dust. He has us ever on His mind. I'm saying this, if that unjust judge would be willing to answer to that little widow woman, being who He is, then surely God will honor our persistence, our, to use the Bible word, importunity, if we are persistent with God, seeing He loves us so. In the second one, it's a friend. It's a friend that that fellow goes to. Can I say he's not just our friend, he's our father. In the second one, he, he it's too much trouble for that fellow to get up because he's in bed and he's getting ready to go to sleep. Can I say that we can never trouble our Heavenly Father because He cannot be troubled. And He neither slumbers nor sleeps. I'm saying this, that we're in a lot better situation with our God than either of those people were in those parables. And the purpose of it was to say this, keep praying! Because God answers persistent prayers. It was steadfast. He didn't pray once and then walk away. He kept praying until He got an answer. Not only was it steadfast, let me say this, it was a shared prayer. It was a shared prayer. Now stop and think about this with me. The Lord Jesus is the greatest prayer warrior ever to live. In fact, as the preacher noted the other night, his present ministry is not a ministry of, of preaching. It's not a ministry of music. It's not a ministry of organization or administration or governance. But his current ministry, the Lord Jesus, right now is a ministry of prayer. He's the greatest prayer warrior ever. He got every prayer he ever prayed for answered. He had a direct line with the Father. He had the best prayer life of anybody we could ever imagine. And when he wanted to pray over this, he grabbed Peter and James and John and said, Fellas, come pray with me. I'm saying this, if he needed folks praying with him, you better believe you and I need folks praying with us. There's a place for going in your closet alone, but there's also a place for gathering together with God's people when you got a need and asking people to pray. There is power in numbers when it comes to prayer. The Lord Jesus taught that in Matthew 18. He said, if any two of you shall agree together touching anything, uh, my Father shall give it unto you. Uh, my Father which is in heaven shall give it unto you. Now, I'm not saying that's a blank check for prayer. There's a lot that we can say about what that means and what it means to agree together about it and to be able to agree that it's the will of the Lord. But I am saying this, it, it communicates to us that more people praying is better than less people praying. I wonder how serious we are about our needs when we won't ask others to pray with us. I'm just being practical. If we know... Can I go a step further? I wonder how much we really uh, feel desperate concerning our needs when we don't ourselves pray over them. If we believe prayer works. I'm saying this, if we're serious about it, we need to find some people that we know pray and that we know know how to pray and that we know do pray... You say, pray with me about these things. It was a shared prayer. But then I think there's one other thing that we have to talk about before we close. And I think really it is the very crux of the issue. The Lord asks for His Father to remove this cup. The cup is not removed. Some would say, preacher, that means that this prayer was not answered. Or if it was answered, it was answered with, with, a, with a no. And we would say this, that the Lord did not get what He wanted. But I think if we look a little closer, we'll find that the Lord Jesus got exactly what He wanted. Nothing more, but nothing less either. You know, everything in life, we all have priorities. You've heard me joke with the church and say this in sermons before. 
But you, you, you've heard me ask people, how, how many of us, and let's just go ahead and ask, how many of us want a vacation? Anybody? Anybody already sick of winter and ain't even here yet? And you've heard me ask this question, well, why don't you take one? Go ahead and take a vacation. What's stopping you? You can take a vacation. And I'll hear people answer back to me, they say, preacher, I can't take a vacation. Well, why? You got any warrants out for your arrest? Got any places they don't let you go? Well, no, preacher. It's, yeah, Fred does, but that just means you can't go to the state of Texas. That don't mean there's other places you can't go, Fred. But people say, well, you know, I, I, no, I mean, I, I guess I could go, but I, I can't go. Well, why can't you go? You not got gas in your car to get you there? Well, no, preacher, I got gas to get me there. You got enough money in the bank account to, to pay for your food while you're there? No, well, preacher, yeah, I do, but that's not... And most of the time, they'll finally break down and say, Preacher, I have responsibilities. I have a job I have to work. I have people depending on me. So here's what you're really saying. You do want a vacation. Of course you do. We all do. But not at the expense of some other things in your life. You know what we call that? We call those priorities. Priorities. It has importance, but there's some things that have equal or more importance in your life. You know that our prayer life is no different. There's things that we ask God for, but not at the expense of other things. And the Lord Jesus, you know what? Listen carefully to what He says. Lord, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, what does he mean if it be possible? If God can literally do it? No, it's not what he means. Because then he goes on to say, Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Can I make a statement that's going to go in some ways in contradiction to what I said earlier in this message? Wouldn't be the first time, would it? It's not that it was impossible for the Father to do. But the limit of Christ's perspective on what was possible ended in the perfect will of His Father. I want to say that again. I want you to really hear it. The scope of what Christ considered possible extended no further than the will of His Father. In His mind, if it was outside of the will of His Father, you might as well consider it impossible. You know why? Because He wasn't going to step outside of that will. Oh, what an example that is to you and I. Would to God that we quit trying to stretch God's will out to scoop some things in that we think we ought to have and instead climb, I'm talking about right smack in the middle of that will and say, Lord, I don't want nothing except what's right here. And if it's outside that circle, if it's outside what is your will, I don't even consider it in existence. It's not even a possibility. It's not even an option. It's not even something to talk about. Let me say that I think this was a successful prayer. You know why? Because it was submissive. He got exactly what he asked for. What he asked for was not that the cup be removed. That wasn't ultimately. That was secondary. What he ultimately asked for was the will of the Father. And that's exactly what he got. Listen, prayer has much less to do with us resting things from the the arms and hands and storehouses of God and far more to do with God molding us into the image of Christ. Now, I believe prayer gets things done, don't you? 
I believe God moves and works through prayers, and I believe God answers prayers. But I do believe this, that the purpose and goal of prayer is not just that God might dispense things into our life, but rather that God might develop us into the image of His Son. Listen to what the Hebrews writer said about this moment in the life of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5 says, So also Christ glorified not Himself to be made an high priest. But He that said unto Him, Thou art My Son, today have I begotten Thee. As He saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of His flesh, this is talking about the Lord Jesus, who in the days of His flesh, when He had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto Him that was able to save Him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. That's talking about Gethsemane. And it's telling us that after the Lord Jesus had prayed a perfect prayer, exactly as a prayer ought to be prayed, that he said, all right, now Lord, what I want above all things is I want your will. When it says he learned obedience, what does it mean? I don't believe it means that he apprehended knowledge because he's omniscient. He knows all things. That's proven to us both practically and pragmatically and theologically and and doctrinally and explicitly by example all through the, the Bible that He knows all things. So what does it mean when it says He learned obedience? Not that He learned it by exposition, but that He learned it by experience. There are some things, and I want to be careful with what I say here, but there are some things that can be learned academically And there are other things that can only be learned experientially. And you can know the academics of it, but you're unable to empathize with the experience until you've been through it yourself. I cannot explain everything about what happened in the Garden of Eden, but I do know this, that the captain of our salvation had to lead a bunch of sons unto glory that sometimes have wills different than the will of the Heavenly Father. And I do not believe there was a schism between the desires of the Son and the desires of the Father. But I do believe that in some respect there was enough daylight allowed between what they both desired that the will of the Son could be subjected to the will of the Father. If for no other reason than simply for the perfect sinless example that it would set for you and I. Though He were a Son, yet learned He obedience through the things which He suffered. You know why? He set us an example because you and I are going to have to submit our will to the Father's will. Can I tell you how to get every prayer you ever pray answered? Pray this and mean it. Lord, not my will, but thy will. If you can learn to pray that and mean it, you'll never have a prayer that God says no to. Every prayer you ever ever pray, God will say yes to. If you can learn to sincerely pray, nevertheless... Not my will, but thy will. You say, but preacher, doesn't that defeat the whole purpose? No, that describes the whole purpose. Because the whole purpose ain't about getting things from God. You know that, I don't have time for this, but that's alright. We all feel a little captive anyway, don't we? We ain't rang the bell yet, so I'm going to go ahead and say this. You know that in God answering our prayers, or in God meeting our needs, let me say it that way, in God meeting our needs, the most least necessary thing the least essential component is our asking for it. The Bible says that He already knows what we have need of before we even ask. He knows what we need. I gave the illustration when I was 
talking to that group of men on Saturday every every Monday or sometimes Tuesday, but early in the week without fail, my wife will get up and she'll go to the grocery store and she'll buy groceries for that week. Never once do I know of my little boy asking his mama to go to the grocery store and buy groceries. But never once has that lack of asking stopped her from doing it. She knows he's going to need chicken nuggets. She knows he's going to need Pop-Tarts. She knows he's going to need chocolate chip granola bars and applesauce. So he never asks, but that never stops her from meeting that need. Because she already knows what he has need of. She has a desire to meet that need. If all prayer was about was just God giving things to us, then our praying would be the least essential component of God meeting those needs. Prayer is about much more. And let me even say it this way. I'm going to venture a little bolder and say prayer is about something altogether different. It may scoop up that added benefit of bolstering our faith and, and growing our dependence upon the Lord. But you know what prayer really at its very heart is? is exemplified in the prayer of the Lord Jesus here. Prayer is about us saying, not my will, but thy will. You learn to pray that and mean it, you'll never have a prayer that doesn't get answered. You'll never... Listen, if you learn to pray that and mean it, God will never say no to you again, ultimately. In what you ask supremely, you'll always get your prayers answered. I think if we can learn to pray like Him... Like the Lord Jesus at this moment in the garden, I think we'll have the most successful prayer life that we could possibly have. I wonder if you and I are praying that way. And if we're not, I wonder if tonight we'd make a commitment to start this evening at this altar saying, Lord, not my will about this matter, but thy will.